give my hearty amen to that song, especially when we just let our voices be the instruments. I love that song penned by Martin Luther so long ago as it captures the essence and heart of the gospel, and you've heard me quote it many times, but the notion that we in Christ, the freedom that we have in Christ, the hope that we have in Christ, the peace that we have in Christ, that we can in earnest, and not just sing it as a matter of tradition, but in earnest say, let good and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. When we juxtapose the eternal kingdom of God with a life that is but a shadow and a mist, as Isaiah says, we have hope beyond measure. Please take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of 1 Timothy. There this morning we resume our study. Sunday prior to last Sunday, we did our introductory uh, sermon into Timothy where we looked at Paul's greeting and talked about some of the themes. So this morning we continue to get right into the body of the letter. So Paul has already given his greeting to Timothy, laid out exactly uh, what he's going to tell Timothy, talk to Timothy about the, the grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have hope in Christ, that God by command, His own command is our Savior. And so Paul is now going to begin to instruct Timothy on how we live in light of that and what, what that means for us. I mean, are these just things that we read and talk about, or are these things, are these truths that are pebbles tossed into the pond that are meant to ripple out? Well, our lives, when God has given us His salvation, His saving work, when He has made us His own, friends, beloved, that is meant to be the pebble that ripples. And so that we are saved, that we are made new, that we have been transformed is meant to ripple out to all of life. In fact, we could reduce 1 Timothy down to one simple statement that Paul would say the gospel has implications for all of our lives for our whole life. It's not just something we talk about on Sundays. It's something that gets inside of us and then begins to work its way back out into our world. And that's how it's meant to be. Well, this morning, as we look at the paragraph in front of us, you're going to hear me say the word sound doctrine a lot today because that's exactly what Paul is talking about. But he's not just talking about this as an academic exercise. He's talking about the reason you need to have sound doctrine is because false teachers are going to come. And so we ground ourselves in truth, we root ourselves in truth, not so that we can be academic, not so that we can just win debates, but beloved of God, so that we can walk in the way of salvation and lead others. So that when we hear things and read things, we can examine them not based on what our opinion is about it, but is this true in light of Scripture? So that's our goal. This morning, our passage of study is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. So now let's take some time to read that together in God's Word. So, beloved of God, this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law 
without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, in the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing. Please now pray with me. Father, Your Word is before us. Lead us on. Lead us on through it. May Your Spirit captivate our minds and hearts now and transform us. Father, we yield this time to You and ask You to renew our minds that we might live our lives more openly for You. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. You know, how important is the soundness of a vessel or structure, right? So we think about a boat, a ship, a vessel, a car, a structure, a house, an apartment building. How important is it for those things to be sound? Well, I suppose if we could ask the victims of the Titanic, or if we could ask the victims who were in South Florida were uh, killed in the structural collapse, they would tell us it's vital. (laughs) The soundness of a structure or a vessel is vital. In fact, our lives depend on the soundness of this building, on the soundness of our homes, on the soundness of our cars. If we ever are on the water, on the soundness of whatever vessel we are in, our lives depend on it because certain things, if they are compromised in soundness, death or a bad end is inevitable. It's not probable. It's not likely. It's inevitable. It will happen. A bad end will come when soundness is compromised. This is true about cars. This is true about boats. This is true about houses. It's true about many things in the physical world. But let me tell you, it's also true in the spiritual world. It's also true in how we understand religion and Bible and faith. Because if doctrine isn't sound, we're going to be given to spiritual death. We are going to be given to spiritual death precisely because we are going to be pushed by every wave of teaching into deeper and deeper falsehoods until we find ourselves alienated from the very source of truth itself, which is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So tampering with doctrine and and inviting unsound doctrine into our lives, beloved, is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It makes a shipwreck of faith when it is imbibed. And so we have here before us this idea that Paul is telling Timothy about sound doctrine, and it's not merely a theological exercise for trained theologians. That's not what this is about. This is vital for all Christians. What is a doctrine? People would say, well, I don't deal. I've heard people say before, I don't get into doctrine. Well, you do. (laughs) You do. Everybody has a doctrine. Even those who say, I have no doctrine, that becomes their set of beliefs taught and held. That's the basic definition of doctrine, a set of beliefs taught and held. So everybody has one. Everybody has a doctrine. All people have a stance. The primary question in doctrine is, is it sound or unsound? Not do you have one, but is what you hold sound or is it unsound? And again, just to make sure we put our cards on the table right out front. Sound doctrine is not determined by Brad Williams or the chapel. 
Sound doctrine is not determined by John Piper or Kevin DeYoung or John MacArthur or whomever else we read and follow. Sound doctrine is determined by the Word of God. And so even when we love people that we listen to, we're not evaluating them based on how much we personally agree with them. We're evaluating them based on is what they're saying in this. Is what they're saying grounded in the Word? And so this is where we also have to ferret out what's my opinion on things of a lesser value and is that worth arguing about? And that's a whole other discussion. But when we're talking about the vital matters of doctrine, i.e. the virgin birth, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, justification, sanctification, all these things that are primary doctrines of Scripture, beloved, we don't have to wonder what, where we get meaning for those. It comes right out of the Word. We can just read God's Word and understand that we are justified in Christ by faith through grace or through faith by grace. And so those things become clear to us. It's important enough, this issue was important enough to Paul that the very first thing he says in the letter, besides a greeting, is, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The very first thing he says. It makes sense. If you go back and and look at uh, Acts 20 when Paul is with the Ephesians church, he warns them then that wolves and sheep's clothing are going to come in among you. Well, here we are. It's happened. Paul warned, and now it's happening. And so that's why he's very, very urgent for, it's urgent for him to get this out first and foremost. So he's urging Timothy here to correct false teaching with sound doctrine. So when we think about uh, faith and life and salvation, we need to understand that Christ alone is our assurance for life. Christ alone is our assurance for life. We need to get that right. But we also need to understand that Christ and His Holy Spirit use the sound doctrine of the Word to anchor us, to transform us, to renew us, to correct us, to discipline us, to guide us, and to lead us in truth. It's exactly what God or Jesus does in the context of His Word with the Holy Spirit. And so when, doctrine, when our doctrine is sound, when we do have sound doctrine, it's useful. It's useful for identifying aberrant thoughts. So if we have, or hear something that's not quite right, we can gauge it by the sound doctrine of the Word, and we can say, oh, well, that's not quite right. Or when we hear something false, utterly, i.e., Jesus didn't really raise from the dead. We know right off the bat that's wrong because sound doctrine of the Word tells me He did, in fact, rise, and He is, in fact, alive and reigning. But it also, sound doctrine helps us to rightly divide the Word of truth so that when our doctrine is sound, we're reading Scripture as it's meant to be read, and so we're living it as it's meant to be lived. Not perfectly, of course. We're all going to stray into our sin patterns. I do, you do, we all do. But sound doctrine is what helps us understand how to read the Word and understand the Word. And so in this sense, it has a positive and a negative uh, aspect to it. And I don't mean negative as in it's bad. I mean, it, it, it exposes what's bad, but it also fans into flame what is positive, what is good. Actually, Paul will give us a, a, a picture of sound doctrine in this, his favorite where we put off the flesh, so sound doctrine helps us put off the flesh, and sound doctrine helps us to put on Christ. Jesus would give us a different picture. Sound doctrine helps us to deny ourselves and take up our cross. 
and to follow him, to take away and to add. And so sound doctrine is just not, it's just not for the academy. It's not for the scholars. It's for every single one of us because it works to root out what is false and it works, as I said a moment ago, to fan into flame what is true. And so it's useful. It's necessary. In fact, Paul says whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine describes what would be unjust. So with those thoughts in mind, I want for us to see one point this morning, and it's this, that sound doctrine clarifies both what is false and helps us understand the purposes of the law. So it clarifies what is false and helps us to understand the purposes of the law. Or it clarifies what is false and clarifies what is true. Or, well, I'm not going to say it a different time. I I think you get it. Sorry. I I don't think less of your intellect. That's not why I'm doing that. I just sometimes get in these rhythms and I can't get out of it. Um... So this morning, (laughs) clearly we're talking about sound doctrine. And so when we think about that, the gospel truth is our weapon against deception and confusion. Gospel truth is our weapon against deception and confusion. Now, truth does a very simple thing. What truth does is clarifies. So when the truth is brought in, it brings clarity. And that clarity is good. We need the clarity. Now, does that mean the clarity is always easy? No. Does it mean the clarity is always fun and warm and uh, just makes us feel ooshy-gooshy inside? No. Sometimes the clarity that it brings is painful. Sometimes the clarity it brings is is downright hard to, to, to deal with. But beloved, God has made it to where that's the essential thing that you and I need. As hard as it may be, as painful as it might feel, we need truth because truth is what sets us in a place or sets us in a good and right place. Because to deny truth is to deny God because God is truth. So to embrace truth, truth of Scripture, is to embrace God and His character as He stands. And that's exactly what human beings need. We see right off the bat, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge, literally command, certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy, Paul is leaving Macedonia, or leaving for Macedonia, and he's telling Timothy, I have a job for you to do. I'm going to Macedonia. You stay in Ephesus precisely because I need an agent there, an agent of truth, who is going to do the thing that this little church is going to need, or this big church, however big the church was. But he uses this word here, charge in the ESV. The, the idea of command there, it's the, the literal meaning would be that of authoritative instruction. So he's urging Timothy to give authoritative instruction precisely on the topic of right and sound doctrine. And he says right out of the gate, certain persons to not teach any different doctrine. Different doctrine from what? Well, the doctrine that Paul had laid down with the church at Ephesus when he preached there, the, gospel, the, the doctrine that Paul had proclaimed to Timothy, the doctrine that Timothy was now meant to imbibe and proclaim. But in, in a sense, what Paul is saying is they are to avoid heterodoxy. Brad, what does that word mean? It comes from two words. It means another doctrine, <laughs> another doctrine. In other words, Paul is saying we cannot play fast and loose with the precepts of the gospel and the doctrine that's already been proclaimed under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a tight system of belief, and it's designed to be proclaimed and lived out exactly as it's been taught to me and now taught to you, and you're going to teach it to 
faithful man, faithful men. And so any deviation from the biblical gospel is what Paul is admonishing here. Any deviation from it. Now, here's where I have to say, as we as Christians, we, as we guard our hearts, we guard our minds, we protect ourselves from things that are false. But understand, we don't have to fear ideas. We don't have to fear ideas that are different from ours. In fact, we should embrace opportunities to interact with those ideas so we have an opportunity to present sound doctrine to people who might be off the path. Because so often I see in Christian circles, sometimes it's easier to run away or bury your head in the sand than it is to engage. And I get it. There's sometimes I don't want to engage either. There's sometimes it would be easier to just avoid and move on than try to say, well, hey, let's have a conversation here about this. I heard you say this or I read this and you said you agreed with it. I'm curious, what is it about this that you're agreeing with? Because when I'm looking at it, I'm finding some issues. Maybe you can help me understand. I mean, that's part of being faithful in our call to proclaim. So we needn't fear things that we don't agree with. We stand up for the truth. And when we are contending for truth, beloved, <laughs> this is important. This is, I need to remember this. We are contending for truth, not our opinion. There are certain things that we can have an opinion about that are different from another person, and it doesn't mean either one of us are attacking the truth. But sometimes what I hear code word is, well, they're, they're just denying the truth, when really what they're denying is a position that you hold. So let us be wise. So James says, pray for wisdom. Let's pray for wisdom. Let us be humble, let us be kind and considerate, but let us stand on what is true. And as we stand on what is true, let's remember that that's our calling, is to contend for truth, not just our opinion in certain areas. But if I have an opinion that's different than yours and you want to change my opinion, by all means, give it a shot, and maybe I will with you, but let's just call that what it is and not contending for the truth. Paul admonishes them, he says, to not teach any different doctrines, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the plan from God or the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, he lists out what some of these different doctrines were, and in this case, it's myths and genealogies. Now, myth in the New Testament is never used in a positive way. I know that C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien try to recapture a positive use of the word myth. And I know what they were doing, and I agree with what they did. But when you see the word myth in the New Testament, you've got to remember, Paul is engaging with people who are lost in Greek mythology. He's engaging with people who are lost in mythologies, that these fanciful, deceptive tales that humanize gods instead of put God up where he's supposed to be. And he's saying, stay away from that. Stay away from those sorts of fanciful things. Don't imbibe those. Don't believe those. Don't teach that there's some how good those are wrong. Those do not get at the truth. But he also warns them against genealogies. Now, why would he do this? Because genealogies in the New Testament, these teachers would come in and they would recite these genealogies from the Old Testament as if they were a part of this line of this great figure. You know, we're from the line of Samuel or we're from the line of whomever else they could name. And they would use that as a, as a way of self-promotion, promoting themselves. You should listen to me because I am David's descendant. You should listen to me because I am Samuel's descendant. And so it becomes a way of shameful self-promotion, taking the focus off of God and Christ and placing it on themselves. I mean, we can see this in today's world where maybe they don't use Old Testament genealogies, but they turn their place into a cult of personality where it becomes about them and not the Lord. God forbid 
that ever happened here at the chapel. Because this is not about us and these teachers, they were making themselves center stage as these super apostles they're called in other places, as if they are the ones who are going to bring you salvation. And so these genealogies, these myths, Paul says no. Because what he says is, is they produce speculation, not truth, and they detract from, the word the ESV uses there is the stewardship which is a fine translation. It could be the order of. It could be the plan from God that is by faith. Think of it this way. The most simple way to understand that is the plan from God that is by faith. What is Paul saying? He's giving us a very simple message here. The plan from God is the gospel, that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Jesus we would become the righteousness of God. The plan of God is not other fanciful myths that we add to it like the Gnostic Gospels try to do. It's not about who you're related to because it's not about ethnicity. It's about the blood of Christ being applied to you and nothing added to that and nothing taken away from that. The simple gospel as it stands, that we are lost in sin until we are rescued by Christ. And once we are rescued by Christ, we have eternal life with Him. And so (laughs) Paul is saying, simple, we need to... Simply stated, what Paul is saying, stick to the plan. Tell them, command them to stick to the plan and not try to embellish it. All matter of bad doctrine comes when people try to embellish on what's just the good, simple, tried and true message of the Bible. They try to make sin not as bad. They try to make grace and love bigger than it's really supposed to be. And those are big doctrines. I'm not subtracting from them. Well, God is love and love is God. We've heard that nonsense before. That doesn't make sense. It's not right. But it comes when people take what's here and they try to build on it instead of letting this be the structure, the foundation, the whole kit and caboodle that we place our lives into. Now, he goes on, says certain persons, or the aim of our charge, rather, verse 5, the aim or the goal of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We don't have to know what Paul's goal and plan is. He tells us exactly what it is. This is exactly what he's aiming for Timothy to do. The aim of our charge or the aim of, yes, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So what is the goal of the truth that Paul wants to proclaim? Godliness. Just simply put, godliness. Godliness that's built on these three aspects. Godliness is always the goal of truth. Beloved, it is. I can't can't say this enough. Truth is not supposed to puff us up. Even pagan philosophers knew that the more they learned, they learned the less they knew. The more we interact with God, the more we become exposed to truth, the more it should humble us to the dust that this loving God stooped down to the earth to where we were, lost in death and sin and all sorts of corruption, and with His own Son lifted us out of the depths and breathed life into our mouths. He set us on our feet. He put a robe of righteousness on our shoulders. He put the ring of authority that we will reign with His Son on our finger and says, you are infinitely loved. This is the God who loves and He wants to produce something in us. That's meant to take us in a direction. So firstly, Paul says the first thing he mentions, that the goal of this charge is love 
from a pure heart. It's love from a pure heart. The very first thing, we are supposed to become people who love, who love God, who love His people, that we focus on God and His goodness, that we focus on God and His faithfulness and His righteousness, that we are seeking to be more and more, that sin is to be more and more bitter to us when and I'm grateful to John Stott for this, not in this commentary, but in another's place. When Stott talks about the pure heart, uh, so often we get confused by that. Do we think it's the, the heart that has nothing in it but all good? And the heart has been cleansed in Christ. You need to understand that. Though we sin, our heart has been made new because we're new creatures. But John Stott focused in on the idea that when Scripture speaks about a pure heart, it's a singularly devoted heart, a heart purely devoted to God. So when we think about this, love that issues from a heart that is devoted to God, a heart that is centered in God, because that's the only type of heart genuine love can come out of. That's the aim of the truth. He says the aim of the truth or the goal of the truth is a good conscience, not burdened by guilt, not burdened by shame, not burdened by tons and tons of regret. Are there things I've done in my life that I regret? Absolutely. There are things I'm ashamed that I did, but I'm not burdened by that because of the truth of Christ. See, the truth of Christ says that mess, that garbage is something that you can now set down and receive free grace in Him. And so a good conscience says I don't have to live my life burdened by things that I have done because Christ has made me free. Now, on the flip side of that, free not to be licentious, <laughs> free not to be just kind of a dud of a person. That's, that's not what the freedom is given for. The freedom is given to trust God's good word more and more and to continually place our lives in his hands. So love from a pure heart, a good conscious, conscience, and he says, a sincere faith. What does it mean to have sincere faith? It means that we try to avoid pretense, that we seek to avoid hypocrisy. Are we all going to be hypocritical at some point or another? Yeah, we are. We're inconsistent people. But a sincere faith is a faith that trusts in the Lord sincerely, truly, genuinely, kind of like a child. A, a, so read childlike faith, a faith that is built on the gospel, a faith that understands who I was, who Christ is, what Christ has done, who I now am, and what I'm living for, which is eternal communion with Him. And so Paul says the goal of truth, that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to do these things. It's meant to do these things for us, to build these things in us. But he says of these men... But certain persons, literally certain men, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion and then desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They've wandered away from these things, these very gospel principles, these central truths, that's what they've wandered away. They've wandered away from soundness. <laughs> that's what he's talking about. They've wandered away from what is true. And where does that lead them? Paul says it leads them right into empty talk. So the wandering, empty talk. Wandering equals empty talk. What is empty talk? It's talk with no value. It's things that are, it's talk that is meaningless. That has, brings nothing quality to the person. 
what is Paul subtly getting at here? That's exactly what all false teaching is. It's empty. My goodness, I know it's an easy target, it's low-hanging fruit, but the prosperity gospel is a prime example of this. It all becomes about money and wealth and power and clout, and you sow your seed to get your blessing. That's the most empty teaching in the world because it neuters the gospel of all its power and says that the message of God is about you being rich and healthy. I would love for it if you were all rich and all healthy, but it just didn't happen that way. And health and fame and wealth do not equal godliness. It's empty. And peddlers of it peddle it, and people buy into it because it itches their ears. This is why sound doctrine becomes vital. When men like Creflo Dollar or, or Benny Hinn or all these other you know, false teachers start spewing that garbage, we need to know why it's wrong. Because I'll tell you a story. In a former church, I made a comment about Creflo Dollar from the pulpit. And we had a family over for lunch that day, and the wife said, you know, you said something about Creflo Dollar, and I listen to his tapes all the time. I found them, I found them very beneficial and helpful and meaningful. And, and so it gave me a good opportunity to open up the Bible and start laying out what sound doctrine. Now, you know, he says this here. How does this square with Scripture? And she wrote me a letter about three weeks later, later thanking me very profusely. I was very encouraged, saying, thank you. The more I've listened and the more I've thought about our conversation, you're right, I realize. I said, well, I'm not right. It's Scripture. I was just leading you to what Scripture says. And so that's why this becomes important. But they've, they've, they've walked into empty talk. It's empty. But Paul says their desire to be teachers of the law. Now, this is an interesting word here. Teachers of the law translates one word. And it's only used a few times in the New Testament. For example, it's used of Gamaliel in Acts, Paul's teacher. It is often used of the Pharisees and scribes who were experts in the law. So what does Paul mean that they desire to be experts in the law? Or, or uh, yes, teachers of the law. He's mean they're, they're de they desire to be thought of as experts in the Old Testament. Specifically, maybe even how to apply the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, to situations. So these guys wanted to be thought of as these great experts of the Old Testament. And <laughs> Paul says very bluntly, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In other words, they are absolutely clueless. They have no idea what they're talking about. Now, we might say, well, how does Paul have the authority to say that? To which I would remind you, Paul was an expert in the law. So before he was a Christian, that was his trade. If anybody can say these guys are, are not talking right, they're lying, it was Paul. Because these men were clueless. They're ignorant. Read all that you can. And these men were blind guides leading the blind. That's what Paul is saying about them. They have no, they have no expertise they don't even know what they're talking about, is what he says. But we can also see somehow, by, by looking at verse 8 when he says, we know that the law is good, in some sense these guys were also disparaging the law in some way, making light of the law, uh, maybe bringing false assertions about the law. I don't know that for sure, but given verse 8, that Paul has to clarify that the law is good, then we know that something wrong, something bogus was happening. But he says, 
Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I'm going to explain that here in just a second. But what we have here is a picture of false teachers speaking empty words. Now, why does that become important? Well, because empty words produce wrong thoughts. Wrong thoughts lead to bad conjectures. Bad conjectures lead to shipwreck of faith. So this is not just a, hey, these guys are idiots, don't pay them any attention. It's like, no, 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 no. These guys are false, and we've got to bring truth and correct this. But of course, it's different in this context because it's happening in their church, right? So we're responsible for our local body. We don't have to get into internet battles with anonymous people that we don't know. Uh, that's not our charge. Our charge is within our context. Now, can you debate with anybody you want to? I'm just telling you, this, this charge is generally uh, geared toward a local context. So Paul affirms here in verse 8, as I said, the inherent goodness of the law. And he has to do this often, <laughs> even in places where he's talking about the new relationship of the Christian believer to the law because of Christ. He always comes back around to affirm the law is good, <laughs> like the law is not a bad thing. I'm not saying you go out and say the law is trash. That's not his point. So here again, he affirms what is right. The law is good. But he says, he he makes it conditional. If one uses it lawfully. Now, he's not questioning the goodness of the law. He's saying now how it's used, it becomes good or bad. And so it's a little play on words here. The law is good if it's used lawfully. It kind of sounds a little circular. (laughs) How do we know how to use the law lawfully? Well, this is where I think John Calvin and many theologians after him have reduced down, what does it mean to use the law lawfully? Well, John Calvin came around and said that, well, there are three ways that we use the law lawfully. That one way is to use the law lawfully is to let the law drive us to Christ. Like the law is not meant to root us in some sort of entrenched, prideful, I keep the law, you're a dirty sinner. No, the law is to continue to expose us for who we are and says, go to Christ, go to Christ. The law is the big arrow that says, go to Christ. The second use of the law that Calvin gave that I think is right is that it's meant to restrain evil. Men and women, human beings are wicked. We are wicked in our sin. We are wicked in our natural state. If you don't think so, just look at the history of war, and that's it. You don't even have to look at anything else. Just look at the history of war and see what we are willing to do to one another. So the law is put in place to restrain the natural evil impulses that human sinners, that humans with uh, lost in sin have toward one another. Even those of us who are saved can have uh, wicked impulses toward other people, but the law was sent to restrain that. The third use of it that Calvin noted, that's the lawful use of it that I think is right, is that it teaches believers. What do you mean by that, Brad? Well, the law does two things. It actually tells us a good way to live our lives. If we were to look at the law and think, if I could order my life by this, we would be living well. So it teaches believers what a good life actually looks like, but it also teaches believers about the character of God. We see God in His holiness. We see God in His righteousness. We see God in His love. We see God in His justice. We see God in His grace. And the law captures all these aspects about God and helps us learn. So, what we say is that the law does not and cannot save, but it does point us to the one who can. The law's purpose and design is not to save. It's to continue to point us to the one who can.
Now, he goes on to say here, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and then disobedient, and then he begins that litany of sins. So the law is given, the law is given to bring conviction to the unjust. That's exactly what it's designed to do. Now, why does he fare it out not for the just? Who are the just? Well, in the New Testament setting, who are the just? Those who are in Christ. What does it mean to be just? I mean, the root of this word in Greek means to be rightly related to. So the just are already those who are in right relationship to the law. How are we in right relationship to the law? Not by our works, not by what we do, not because we follow the right teachers. By Christ. We are justified by Christ and now stand justified in the eyes of the law. Because of Christ's work in our hearts, we are made right with the law. We stand in good um, We stand right in the eyes of the law. So since the gospel imputes Christ's righteousness to us, we are right. Now, this list of sins that he lists here, they move from general ungodliness to specific evil. I want you to notice this. I want to give you the framework. When you think about the Ten Commandments, you've got a framework there that we could easily break down and people have for years, our, our duties to God and our duties to our neighbor which is why uh, the essence of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So when we look at, as Paul lists these examples of the unjust, where does he begin? Lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinner, unholy, and profane. A general sense of failure to honor God, to be holy to the Lord, to, to love the law of the Lord, to love godliness and pursue godliness, to... To, to seek to abandon sin. That's, what, that's where we're called to live as Christians. These were teaching a, a, an unjust thing, or the, he's laying out unjustness here, and he begins with a failure in duty to God. But see, now it, it moves to a more specific bent of evil, who strike, or literally, it doesn't, literally you could read that, who murder their fathers and mothers. That word murder there would have a broad um, lexical value. For murderers, the profane, or I'm sorry, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now we can see that these are things that we do to one another that really captures the fifth of the ninth commandments. So Paul is laying out a framework here. What does unjustness look like? It looks like a continual breaking of the law, of denying God his worship, and denying our fellow man the love we owe them. And as I said a while ago, we're not saved by the law, and Paul doesn't think we're saved by the law. No, but the law does teach us how to live. As Christians, you and I, we are not compelled to live by the law to secure our spot in Christ. That is secured in Christ, by Christ, and wholly of Christ. But what the gospel does, or what the, what, the, what the law, or I'm sorry, what the gospel does do is it does liberate us to love God and our neighbor. It liberates us to get out of ourselves. It liberates us, I've already said it, to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow God. And so it liberates us to love God as we should and love our neighbor as we should. And as I mentioned a moment ago, what the law does is it teaches us about the good character of God and the ideal life. If you can't look at, I mean, just, just the Ten Commandments alone and think, well, it's good to honor my father and my mother, to honor authority. It's good not to murder people, right? 
It's good not to steal. It's good not to be so envious of somebody's possessions or their spouse that I'm driven to hatred. It's good not to lie, right? Those things are just good practices. And it's interesting, though, those things come very natural to humans that has to be worked out of us. (laughs) As the law exposes the wrongness of those acts, we begin to move away from those things. Well, Paul brings this all together, and I love the kind of what he does here. Because now remember, the context that we've been talking about is the law is good. And then he says in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. In accordance with or according to. So what Paul is saying is that the moral standards of the law are completely congruent with the moral standards of the gospel. How do we know that? The Sermon on the Mount Jesus brings it all full circle by reminding us that the gospel is not teaching any sort of different moral standard. The gospel is not saying go, go and murder, go and commit adultery, go and lie, go and steal. No, the gospel is very much saying, no, you're liberated from those things. You don't need to indulge them. The gospel reminds us that sound doctrine and sound practice, they flow from the gospel and the law itself to glorify God. Now, I want to be clear. I want you to know this is what I am not saying. I am not saying that if you go out and try to obey the law, you're going to be somehow more saved or more righteous than anybody else. I am not saying that. I am not saying that you are somehow saved by the law. What I am saying is that one who is saved by the gospel alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, is free to walk in obedience. Free to be obedient to God. And that is good. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. It's not anti-gospel for us to speak about obedience. It's anti-gospel for us to assume that licentiousness is somehow okay. You know, being sound is a matter of life and death. I said that at the very beginning. We don't pursue sound doctrine to win arguments. We don't pursue sound doctrine so that we can impress people with our knowledge. We don't pursue sound doctrine for any other reason other than we are commanded to, and we pursue it because we know that only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Only Jesus. So it's not merely a theological hobby horse. It's, a word, it's the Word, the Word of light and life, bringing light and life to us and to the world. Knowing what we believe and why we believe is vital to sharing the truth. It just is. We need to know what it is. We need to know why. We need to be kind. We need to be caring. We need to be compassionate. But we must also know what is right and stand there. Not be moved. The most loving thing we can do for our neighbors and our world is to pursue sound doctrine and constantly contend for the truth. That we, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness... When we seek God first and His kingdom, beloved, we're going to develop sound doctrine. And when we let the Word inform our thinking and not the latest fad, we're going to pursue sound doctrine. And we can have confidence in the Scriptures that in the day that we have to, we'll have the words to speak. May we be bold and faithful to speak them. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for your word this morning, sound doctrine. Thank you for teaching us rightly. Thank you for faithful 
thank you for faithful preaching throughout the years, God. I know there's a lot of unfaithful preaching that happened, but thank you for the proclamation, the pulpits that have faithfully proclaimed your word without shame, without fear. Truly, we stand on the shoulders of giants, God, and may we continue their work by standing on truth and proclaiming your word. Oh, Father, I pray for our hearts. Capture every last heart in this room this morning. Capture every one. For those of us who are walking with you, uh, recapture it afresh and remind us of our pursuit of holiness. For those who might not be walking with you, capture them for the first time and bring them into the life of hope and peace and righteousness and joy. And Father, may we all live for you and stand on truth. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.